It's Wednesday, January 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump addressed the nation from the Oval Office to persuade Americans on the need for a border wall to address the humanitarian crisis there. He struck a more measured tone, using a more emotional appeal, rather than trying to use too many facts and figures. The Democratic response, on the other hand, accused the president of using the Oval Office to manufacture a crisis. Amanda Becker, correspondent for Reuters, joins us to discuss the effectiveness of the address and if it moves the needle at all. Next, storied retailer Sears could be on its way to being done for good. After filing for bankruptcy last October, negotiations have continued to see what can be done to keep the company afloat. Zlati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today, joins us for what may be the final days for Sears. And the biggest problem? While many feel nostalgic about the company, no one is shopping there. Finally, a follow-up to a mysterious story that started in 2016. U.S. and Canadian diplomats in Cuba had complained of bizarre symptoms after hearing strange noises, prompting speculation about potential sonic weapons. The Associated Press obtained audio of the purported sonic attack, and now we know what the sound was. Hillary Brick, science reporter for Business Insider, joins us for what was in the audio, the calling song of the Indies' short-tailed cricket. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My administration is doing everything in our power to help those impacted by the situation. But the only solution is for Democrats to pass a spending bill that defends our borders and reopens the government. Joining us now is Amanda Becker. She covers Congress and the Trump administration for Reuters. The president has delivered his uh, big address to the nation in the Oval Office about the humanitarian crisis at the southern border. He struck a much more measured tone that he has had in recent time about the issue, tried to connect with people on a more emotional level. He talked about some of the violence that immigrants that have gotten into this country have caused on Americans. But there's still a big disconnect between Trump and the Democrats. What did the president have to say during his speech? In the past couple of days, we have heard President Trump starting to use the phrase humanitarian crisis. And he continued to do that, really painting a portrait of what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border that is perhaps a little bit more sympathetic to the people who have made that journey and who are attempting to cross into the U.S. Right off the top, he he talked about how it strains public resources and drives down jobs and wages. And he said, quote, among those hardest hit are African-Americans and Hispanic Americans. Our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs, including meth, heroin, cocaine and fentanyl. He later said this is an, and this is another quote. This is a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul. So this is much different language than we've heard him using in the past. But it did little to change the underlying issue here, which is that the Democrats do not believe that a wall would be effective. Many of them believe it to be something that's immoral to build a barrier like that along the border. And it really doesn't get them any closer together in terms of actual negotiation. And the president even mentioned that as much, saying, you know, walls are not immoral. A lot of people think it is. Then why do these people have walls built around their homes and things like that? It's, he said the walls are in place to protect the people that we love, trying to say that we need this barrier on the border because we need to protect Americans, people that we love. He did try to not give too too many facts and figures during the address. I'm sure it's because a lot of people have already been picking apart things that have been coming out of the administration. So he was trying to stick on that more emotional tone than really going off with a lot of numbers. The last thing that he wanted was to give this address 
and then have every number pulled apart and proven to be incorrect, you know, and given Pinocchios the next day or 10 minutes after. And a lot of the networks said that they were going to try and do live fact checking. Yeah. Exactly. When they decided to air this address. So there's a very good reason why he did stick to this more emotional tone and did not cite some of the more controversial figures than he has in the past. And even when you're talking, he was talking about building walls. A lot of wealthy Americans have built walls to protect themselves. And his administration had, I think, a week or so ago. You know, it's hard to keep track of the timeline of all this. I've been talking about how President Obama had built a wall around his house. And that, of course, immediately was proven to be incorrect because people went and published pictures of the Obama's house and there's no wall. So he was trying to keep things kind of amorphous and emotional and not talk about hard facts as much. Speaking about money really quick, he wants $800 million to improve care for families at the border. That is the humanitarian crisis that is being spoken of. But he's still holding firm on that $5.7 billion for a steel fence, not a concrete wall anymore. Let's move on to the Democratic response. Democrats, the optics of it, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer looked very angry at the start of their response, and they accused the president of using the Oval Office to manufacture a crisis. Crisis was thrown around so many times on both sides. From their perspective, this was a stunt. They requested time for a rebuttal to not have that be the last word out there. The overall thrust of their response was that, you know, if you want to keep talking about this and negotiating about this, fine, but don't say that we're keeping the government shut down because we could pass these partial spending bills to reopen the government and still talk about the border security component of this and not have all these people suffering needlessly. There are 800,000 people not receiving paychecks right now who are employees of the federal government. And even more, when you start to think about contractors and businesses that support workers of the federal government. So they really just want to get the government back open, whether it takes doing something piecemeal and talking more about the border security component with the White House. The president is going to be going to the border in Texas in the next couple days to McAllen, Texas, where a lot of people have been to. We've seen a lot of images from that part of the border. I think it would have been a lot more effective if he went to the San Isidro port of entry, where a lot of this stuff is happening. He could have made a, a far better case with his presence there. In the end, does this move the needle on any side for anybody? It feels like it was lukewarm responses on both sides from the president and the Democrats. I don't think anybody's going to be swayed either way. I agree. I mean, I don't know who on the other side in either case would come away from either the president's address or the Democratic rebuttal saying, you know what, I think after all this, this changed my mind on this topic. I think that the Trump supporters who want a wall, who were promised a wall in the elections are still going to want a wall. I think the Democrats who oppose it are still going to oppose it. I've seen all over the place that the possibility of the president declaring a national emergency seems to be the easy way out for everybody. That way, the Republicans can say, well, we never came. And we open reopened the government, at least. And same thing for the Democrats is nobody caves and Trump is going crazy on his own, declaring a national emergency, which is almost certain to face legal scrutiny. I don't think declaring a national emergency right now is wanted by Republicans or Democrats, at least outside the White House. From the Democratic standpoint, of course, they would immediately challenge it, either using their congressional authority or in the court. Even some Republican Senate leaders have said, we think that would really poison these negotiations. And so if it did fall apart under legal challenge, then they'd be at even more of a standoff over this issue and wouldn't be able to move forward. Perhaps the fact that he did not mention it tonight means that the White House is backing off of that idea as well. We will just have to wait and see on that. Crazy times. The conversation of national security and border security continues and the partial government shutdown seems to have no end in sight still. 
Amanda Becker covering Congress and the Trump administration for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. When push came to shove, those people were not going into those wallets and spending the money at Sears. Now, maybe that was because they didn't have a strong digital presence, and these are people that prefer to do their shopping online. Another criticism that Sears has faced is that their merchandise has really not been so compelling. On that front, also, people chose to turn elsewhere. Joining us now is Lati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today. So we're getting news about Sears after many delays and bankruptcy court, all this stuff. They are announcing that they've accepted a bid from the hedge fund that's controlled by Eddie Lambert, who's the chairman and former CEO of Sears. It should keep about 425 stores open, but it's still going to go through a liquidation process to sell off a lot of assets. A lot of people are still saying that it really is the end for the storied retailer. Uh, What do we know what's going on with Sears right now? Well, they haven't accepted a bid yet. What they've done is they've given an opportunity for Sears Holdings chairman and largest investor Eddie Lambert's hedge fund, which is called ESL Investments, to sort of tweak its deal. And I was sitting in the bankruptcy court up in White Plains, New York, and there were delays, delays, delays. One can only imagine there were some negotiations going on, some talking to the judge in chambers. But what they've said was that ESL Investments have to come up with a $120 million deposit and some new deal terms by 4 p.m. So this big expectation is now basically delayed a bit, and that will really determine what will happen. Now, part of that $120 million deposit will be $17.9 million that will be non-refundable, and we'll see then if those two sides can work things out. Otherwise, you're correct. Liquidation would be right around the corner, yes, and that would really be the end of what is a storied American retailer. They filed for bankruptcy last October. A lot of retailers end up going bust after that anyways. You could just think of Toys R Us, Radio Shack, Sports. Authority, they all kind of follow this path and are no longer around. But is this really something that they think is going to keep Sears afloat for that much longer? You know, it's really anybody's guess. We have not been privy to what the real details of that deal is. And obviously that will be edited slightly, assuming ESL meets its deadline, which it may or may not do. So we really don't have a firm picture of what the deal will bring. I can tell you that what we do know is that it includes $1.3 million in financing, and that is estimated to save approximately 425 stores and tens of thousands of jobs. But first on our agenda is to see if the 4 p.m. deadline Wednesday is met. The retail industry has been going through a huge change in recent years. Obviously, Amazon, everybody buys a lot of stuff online. Online buying is up really high. Where did it all start going south for Sears? You raise one interesting point, and that is that they really failed to pivot to digital as well as some of their fellow retailers, and that really seemed to have hurt them. They also were dealing with heavy weight coming from a pension cost. They were dealing with real estate leases. They really just had a lot hanging around their neck, and they seemed to be unable to turn the ship around. One thing that was really interesting was when they did declare bankruptcy, and every time you kind of hear something else rumbling, oh, Sears is going to be going under, it's going to be going away soon. People go to social media and they start saying, oh man, I remember Sears. I loved Sears. I did all this stuff. I had all sorts of firsts. People remember it very fondly, but there's a huge problem underlying that whole thing is that those people still don't shop there now. And a lot of people still don't go there. You're 100% correct. We're hearing lots of people sort of bemoan the death of Sears and they talk about, oh, I did my back to school shopping there. And I remember going for holiday pictures with my family and I got my tools there and I got my appliances for my first home and all this sort of like lovely nostalgia. But when push came to shove, those people were not going into those wallets and spending the money 
at Sears. Now, maybe that was because they didn't have a strong digital presence, and these are people that prefer to do their shopping online. Or maybe another criticism that Sears has failed is, has faced is that their merchandise has really not been so compelling, hasn't been so up-to-date, hasn't been so cool. And on that front, also, people chose to turn elsewhere. So I, psychologists had told me when I did a story about that sort of nostalgia for, t- for Sears, as part of it is just simply it's such a part of one's childhood that we don't want it to die, even right. though we're not engaging in it ourselves. <laughs> we sort of want it there because, damn it, it's always been there and we want it to remain there. So we're sort of seeing this this irony. And you have to remember the history of Sears itself. I mean, Richard W. Sears, he founded the predecessor company, which was a watch business in 1886. And he later brought on a watchmaker whose name was Alvis V. Roebuck to um, help him with that. I mean, and this is a company that had its IPO in 1906. I mean, we think about what happened to MySpace. Well, I mean, think how far back Sears and Roebuck yeah. today, known as Sears, goes. And it's really such an iconic company. We think about the Wish Book, which, of course, was the iconic holiday catalog. And so many people talk about, oh, I remember circling the toys and hoping Santa would get them for me. The thing you were talking about, psychologists refer to that to the as the rosy reflection bias. I thought that was a funny name for it. But it's true. I mean, I haven't stepped into Sears in years. The last time I went through one was just this past holiday season. But I was only walking through it to get to the mall on the other side. And that's what we think of Sears. It's usually an anchor point to these malls and those things have been dying off. It's just the industry has changed. And with the ease of online purchasing now, they never modernized in the right way. So we think about it in rosy terms, but maybe it is better if we just let it go away. I mean, what is going to change it that all of a sudden everybody's going to start shopping there again? They really just have to step up to the plate in the areas where they were lacking. Like I said, digital presence, a more refreshed merchandise, obviously their financial management decisions that they make in the C-suite that would turn it around also. But who knows? We'll see what happens at 4.01 p.m. to see what the next chapter in the book of Sears will be. Zlati Meyer, money reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The recording gives us the first tangible sense of what it was like for these American government workers in Havana who were hearing these unexplained sounds in their residences and later developed physical symptoms. Joining us now is Hillary Brick, science reporter for Business Insider. This is an update to one of my favorite stories just because there was a lot of mystery surrounding it and it's still unsolved. It goes back to 2016 when diplomats from the United States and Canada were in Cuba and they were complaining of getting bizarre symptoms after hearing strange noises, high-pitched frequency noises. It prompted people to speculate, are there some type of sonic weapons or sonic attacks going against these diplomats? They complained that there was physical symptoms as well, uh, hearing loss, speech problems, issues with balance, nervous system damage, headaches, ringing in the ears, all sorts of stuff. And it caused such an uproar that we cut the Cuban embassy staff by 60% at the time. We have an update now because the Associated Press obtained audio of what this sonic attack could have been. And scientists went and looked into it. And we have an update now. What is that update? So, in fact, the scientists think that these sounds were probably just cricket. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, how did they come to this conclusion? something that the Cuban government had also mentioned earlier, but they had misstated what kind of cricket it might be. And people said, no, that doesn't sound like that's quite it. And so 
Now they looked at the recording again, and it didn't match up with what crickets sound like outside or out in the field where scientists usually study them. But when they played a field recording of crickets indoors, where people might have recorded it, it sounded exactly the same. And they said, this sounds basically identical to this indie short-tailed cricket that lives in Cuba. Not only were they able to identify that this is audio coming from crickets, but with the way and the frequency and everything, how the sound is coming, they were able to even identify what kind of cricket it was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a, it's a short-tailed cricket that's native to Cuba, and there's lots of other crickets like it throughout the Caribbean. There was reports were all over the place on what was actually these noises, because there were people that were getting sick in the embassies that reported not hearing anything, but they still got physical symptoms. There was other things like people were saying, oh, I only hear it in this section of the house. And then when I move out of it, I I don't hear it as much. So the reports were all over the place. Yeah. And I know there was one person who said that when he opened the door, the sound stopped, which crickets tend to stop chirping if they think danger is lurking in the grass. So that makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just so interesting. And so then how did they test this theory out? I I know that they put crickets in a room and they tested, they recorded it and they, they found that, you know, all the frequencies and how quickly the chirps were going all matched up with these crickets. Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you look at the waveform. Scientists did a field recording of the crickets and you see that waveform and then you look at the recording that was obtained in Cuba and it looks pretty different. And then they put it on a speaker, on a loudspeaker inside of a room that could reverberate, you know, ricocheting off the walls and the ceiling and the floor and they matched those up and they look, it looks like it's the same sound. It's quite striking. Now, the government did commission a team of researchers to look into the people that had experienced some of these symptoms, and they published some findings saying that 81% of the people still had cognitive issues, some had balance problems, vision issues, so they still had long-lasting effects after whatever initially had been deemed a sonic attack. Doctors who've pointed out some flaws with those studies, but you know, they do say it's possible that the authors of this new study say it's possible that there was some other sort of attack that happened and we just don't know what it is. So it's still very mysterious. That's why I, I love about this is that, uh, you know, the mystery still keeps going. I mean, we never really found out what it is. And honestly, I thought this story had died down and went away. So when I heard that it was crickets, I was like, obviously, this is what the conclusion was. But the researchers just said that that audio that the AP obtained was crickets. The uh, larger case is still open because nobody knows what it was. When I heard it first, too, I said that can't be right. But, you know, then I looked at the research and it's pretty convincing. Yeah, there was also another case that happened in China where other embassy workers reported the same thing, hearing mysterious sounds and then having physical effects. But the cricket explanation doesn't work there the way it would in Cuba. So the mystery still remains. One other thing that these researchers pointed out was that, you know, there have been other times in the past where nature has duped us in this way. After the Vietnam War, people were worried about this so-called yellow rain that was coming out of the sky, and they thought maybe it was some sort of chemical weapon attack from the Soviet Union. But that just turned out to be some honeybee poop that was falling from above. So, <laughs> Oh, man. There might be some other force at work in China, or there might be some other strange attack happening that we just can't even pick up. Haley Brick, science reporter for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.